All right. Get cozy. You're on the couch. It's very psychological here. I'm going to interview you. Break you down. Yeah, just keep that microphone close to your face. Don't okay. wiggle it around too much. Yeah. Um, but thank you for having me to your beautiful home in Nevada City. Um, I'm super stoked to be doing this with you, man. Yeah, me too. Likewise, it's great to have you up here this weekend. Yeah. Um, so you were asking if I have any like stock questions for my podcast. And the answer is I only have one real stock question. And I'll ask you that question and then I'll explain why after you give your answer. Sounds good. So the first question, the official first question of model behavior is, what were you up to when you were seven years old? When I was seven years old, yeah. I was running around the neighborhood, getting into trouble, mm -hmm. um, playing in. We had, we actually had a pretty, I lived in a townhouse development and so there was always a lot of kids out playing and we had a nice creek and yeah. little sister and I feel like at seven years old, were Razor scooters a thing then? Because I think maybe a little bit later. Maybe a little later they became yeah. a thing. There was like the, the hot gift one Christmas, I remember. Maybe when we were like 11 or 12. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah but like well, rollerblades were big and skateboards and bikes. And yeah. So you kind of had an idyllic neighborhood childhood. It was it was a very, yeah, it was idyllic in the sense that it was urban, suburban, yeah. seven-year-old life. And we were playing kickball in, you know, in like the parking lot and sliding into home base yeah. in the cement. And yeah. so I do have some fond memories of that. And yeah, it was a pretty, pretty active young. Little, you say you're getting boy. into trouble. Were you on the troublemaking spectrum? Were you towards the far end or were you more reserved? Were you kind of a follower? Were you, or were you one like knocking over mailboxes? I would say... I was, I, I would describe myself as a bit of a, yeah, as I was on the far end of the spectrum of yeah. probably pretty troublemaking yeah. and, you know, rabble rousing and me too, me yeah. too, for sure. <laughs> We're like cut from the same cloth. Doesn't surprise me. So the reason I asked that question is there's this ancient maxim that says, give me the child until seven and I'll show you the adult, which basically implies that your first seven years of life set you up to be the person you're going to become. And you kind of no matter what, you can't stray too far from that path. And it sounds like you were a bit of a troublemaker, but you also came from a well-grounded, idyllic environment. So there may be two competing forces in you that are between this sort of, you know, um, uh, rejection of authority and also knowing that you were safe and cared for and comfortable. Does that, does that, track with you it it does that actually hits a uh, pretty spot on the nail yeah um, I have identified with a little bit of a rebellious streak and I, I've come to more recently understand that as kind of a sacred rebellion of sorts and yeah it's true that I had to, I had a very caring loving family and mm -hmm. so in a lot of ways um, it was natural for me to kind of just I had a ton of energy and I didn't really know where to place it all the right, time sure. and so going out and um, you know, being active and I see, I've come to, I'm, I'm, it's still continuing to unfold for me. Like what that inner child actually, what that little Alex, mm -hmm. what he really wanted. Seven year old Alex. Yeah. yeah. What was he rebelling against? Truly? What was he, you know, why was he testing the limits? You know, I, I go through the same thing because I was a troublemaker and I kind of got away with it. Most of it until college. And then I started to, my trouble started to catch up with me and we all know yeah. my story. Uh, I got in plenty <laughs> of trouble in college and then have recovered from it and grown from it. Um, learning in those negative spaces, as we talked about in the last episode with Sam Glinsman is really important. Um, but you know, this is model behavior and I don't just talk to models. I talk to 
people in the modeling industry, but also just people I find creatively interesting and inspiring on a, you know, a personal level in terms of their their growth and their journey. And you are someone who is very much on the path of growth and self-optimization. So I just want to dig into sort of your journey as much as you're willing to share and like how you've come from, you know, being someone who's maybe a little bit of a rabble rouser, you know, innocently as a child and then maybe a little bit more illicitly as an adult. (laughs) And then, you know, what sort of insights you've, you've had as you've matured and learned from what you may perceive as mistakes or um, paths that were not ideal in terms of sustainability of a life. So I'm just kind of curious, um, you know, how did you end up in Nevada City? Let's work backwards. Yeah. Yeah. So how, how did you end up in this beautiful spot? You know, you're from, you were based in San Francisco before this in Oakland. Yep. Um, so why here? Why are we, why are you quarantined here? Yeah, yeah. Well, what brought me to Nevada City was actually last year, back when pre-pandemic life, Mm -hmm. um, I did a teacher training, a yoga teacher training up here and really wanted to do a teacher. I mean, there's lots of great teacher trainings around around the world, but in the Bay, I wasn't as attracted to many of the kind of cookie cutter studio yoga trainings. And there's two teachers in particular out here um, who who I work with who are very steeped in kind of the lineage and mm-hmm. a, a more austere practice uh, of yoga, which really appealed to me. And also I had a really strong spiritual foundation. So basically not, you know, core power yeah. yoga training in, yeah. in San Francisco. And right. so that's what brought me out here. And then the more time I spent out here, as, as you've seen, it's kind of a special place where there's this very, very conscious community, mm-hmm. um, you know, almost too much so at times. Yeah, a little, it can go a little extreme for sure. Yeah, and in just beautiful Yuba River in the foothills of the Sierras. And so, um, yeah, I found myself loving it up here. And then basically once quarantine hit, had the opportunity to come up here and stay here mm-hmm. and um, have now just officially at the start of this month made, I don't know when this will come out, but like a week ago, made I made it making it officially my primary home. Yeah. And you're here, you're with your beautiful girlfriend, Grace, who's also a yogi, and um, she's pursuing a graduate program in therapy and counseling. So she's also on the self-improvement track. So you guys are both, you know, creating this sort of beautiful life tucked away. I get it. I mean, the solitude, the quiet, the nature, the um, big city life is not really as appealing as it may have used to be and paying exorbitant rents to you know, stake a claim in a a cool city, uh, it's kind of lost its luster, especially in the times when you can't even take advantage of the things those cities have to offer. You know, restaurants are closed, bars are closed. We're getting older and, you know, bars may not be our thing anymore. Um, But it's funny, like, you know, we went to the same college. We were in the same senior uh, society. Uh, We crossed paths a lot. And you know, you were on the golf team, you were hard partying, you were mm-hmm. not a yogi, not a spiritual um, adventurer in that way. At least I didn't think so, unless you had some underlying you know, desires, as we all do. We're all trying to figure things out in college. But take me through your journey from, you know, being a sort of I guess I could say privileged child, you know, like we were, we went to an Ivy league school. We were white men. We kind of had the world 
as our oyster. Yeah. And that is a good thing and a bad thing sometimes. So, you know, how, how did your path sort of divert after college and how did you get from, you know, Dartmouth graduate to Yogi in the woods of Nevada city? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting, man. Well, I'm curious if you can relate to this, but this is something that I've only come to understand recently, but, um, one of the things that really drew me to Dartmouth was, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm from a pretty, pretty urban suburban environment. And so I grew up, um, yeah, I was a real, I caddied. And so I didn't, I played a lot of golf, got good at golf, worked at golf courses and always spent a lot of time outside, but had that, you know, I didn't never really identified too much with being like a nature guy. Yeah. But then when I went to Dartmouth, I was like, wow, middle of New Hampshire, yeah. beautiful Lone Pine. And, um, and so, um, I think I've come to understand recently after spending now, you know, probably more than six months in Nevada city that I really love being in nature. Yeah. And I'm, it I'm does curious, something to you. Yeah. yeah if, and I, and I think that's what, you know, in some way drew me to Dartmouth mm-hmm. and a lot of us, right. Because there's a lot, yep. of, a lot of opportunities. And I had the same draw. I, you know, I went to camp every summer as a middle schooler and high schooler, and it was all about getting into nature as much as possible. And then I spent, you know, a few few summers with this program called Adventure Treks that's very similar to Knowles and it's just, you know, 24 kids in the woods for a month with like a U-Haul and a van and you're rafting and you're rock climbing and you're mountain biking and you're doing all the things and you're mm-hmm. never showering, you're staying at campgrounds of America. And so that sense of being in nature and being dirty and having a, a sort of self-sustainability, you know, everything fits into my duffel bag or my backpack and I can carry it with me and I can take care of myself before I even knew how to do laundry, you know, necessarily. <laughs> um, always gave me a sense of fulfillment. And then that drew me to Dartmouth because yeah, it's in the middle of the woods has a huge outdoor program. Um, you have all the opportunities in the world to, um, get outside and explore that, that sort of, I don't know, beautiful fulfillment that comes from nature. But unfortunately I got to Dartmouth and, you know, as, as grand as my designs were to be in the woods as much as possible. I spent most of my time in a fraternity basement, um, not hiking and not, uh, having transcendent experiences in nature and just, you know, looking for escape through alcohol or partying or socialization and, um, got a little distracted from that path, Mm -hmm. which is common I'd say at Dartmouth because it's a, it's a drinking school and it's a drinking culture. It's all fraternity. There's no, there's no bars. There's no social outlet other than the fraternity system really. And, um, yeah, I, I look back and I wish I would have taken more advantage of some of the programs that were available to me, but you know, it's just the way it went. Yeah. 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 I feel you on that. I mean, I mean, to your point too, about like a lot of having, you know, in a certain sense, a lot of privilege where, um, at Dartmouth, you know, we come in, we come into an environment where, um, there's just so amazing teachers and, you know, I would just some of the coolest, coolest, smartest people around. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I like, like you, I, you know, was just partying, right? Yeah. We were, we were ha- I mean, we had a blast. And, and so what I've come to really understand it, cause you know, kind of back to your question about my path and my journey is like, and even in my high school in my area in the DC, in the DC area, there's a lot of partying, a lot of access, a lot of drugs at, a, at sure. an early age. And then Dartmouth too. I mean, you know, most colleges are drinking, partying colleges, but Dartmouth mm-hmm. in particular, like the amount of my friends who are alcoholics and, yeah. you know, in recovery is pretty, pretty astounding. Um, that said, I think 
you know, it's easy just to be like, oh, it's the environments that we were, you know, we're products of our environments when, right. you know, that's, that's a factor. But I think, you know, for myself, um, smoking, smoking weed, drinking, that became such a gateway to social belonging mm-hmm. where um, it was one, a lot of fun, but also two, masking underlying insecurities. Sure. You know, oh, totally, and, dude. I yeah. relate to that 100%. I mean, I, I came into Dartmouth, uh, you know, at 18 as a college freshman. I looked about 14. I don't think I was, I wasn't shaving yet my freshman year. You did not look like uh, you do now. Yeah, I do not. I did not look like I do now. I'm finally like grown into my face. Um, I wasn't on a sports team. I didn't have any real goals in terms of, you know, you get to, I I was so dead set on getting to Dartmouth. I got there and I was like, ah, I made it. We're done. Finally. And then you get there and everyone's like, well, I want this iBanking internship and I want to get into med school and I want to get into law school. Yeah. And I was like, wait, 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 slow down, guys. Right, like, can we right. just enjoy where we are? Like, this yeah. is this is the goal, right? And I sort of didn't have a strong academic path. And like I said, I wasn't on a sports team. So my identity got wrapped in, wrapped up in my ability to engage with the social scene yeah. and be impressive in the social scene whether that's drinking a beer really fast or drinking a lot of beers or drinking beers for a long time setting record state records setting state records for for, yeah i mean i and i thought that was what made me cool because there was an underlying insecurity because you get to this place where every like a third of the kids are valedictorians yeah you know everyone got perfect scores in their sats everyone had great gpas you're no longer the special kid from your high school who's, you know, going on to great places. Now you're competing with people who are so type A, so driven, so successful. And when you, when you sort of see yourself amongst that sea of achievement and see that people are angling for the next achievement and you don't know what you want, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to sort of find yourself. So you just sort of lose yourself. And a good way to do that is to, get blackout drunk you yeah know, to escape and not worry about it and i definitely did a lot of that um escapism for sure yeah and do, do you do you think it's i i it what what comes for me when when you say that is it's like also a type of sacred rebellion because we're thrown into this system mm-hmm. where we're very much you know cogs in the wheel where you're doing the good boy thing going getting your internship getting your job getting your apartment yeah. you know going in the suburbs rinse, repeat. Mm -hmm. And I think in a lot of ways, you know, at least speaking for myself, um, I I found, I've somehow found myself in this situation that I wasn't sure that I really wanted. And, and then, so yeah, the natural thing to do was to not embrace the studies and everything that's around you, but kind of to rebel from it. And so substances, I think in a certain sense, provide a spiritual outlet Mm -hmm. for an existential meaning crisis and when you say spiritual i'm curious what your definition of spiritual is because i've never thought about it that way in terms of my personal rebellion yeah um when you say it's sacred or spiritual what what does that mean to you yeah i mean it's continuing to unfold what that what that means for me but i think that um i i think that what attracts us in in a a lot of ways to substances it's it's a spiritual pursuit Mm -hmm. osho who is rajneeshi and wild wild country who you know a lot of people say different things about him, but he had some gr- great teachings, talks about how the attraction to, to drugs and substance is a deeply spiritual pursuit mm-hmm. where, you know, the world around us in so many ways is so there's immense suffering. Life can, you know, be so brutally unforgiving that the only 
natural reaction is to try to seek something bigger and you know and so on extremes of that scenario could be you know people ending their lives right sure killing themselves uh or um you know finding some way where they can adjust their their state their consciousness Mm -hmm. in a way that eases that provides tremendous relief for the existential bind which we i think we all find ourselves in which is that like oh like what are we doing on this ball hurling through space yeah, around, you know, and so it's a way to avoid the larger, almost impossible questions like we were talking about earlier today, like the universe, like what the fuck? Like you can't even there's nowhere to start talking about it because a we don't know enough and b it's just it's so far beyond the scale of what the life we lead on a day to day basis is that it's it's just an impossible proposition. Yeah. Um, but you're talking about that sort of um looking for something outside and you know you can find it in very positive ways through flow states through you know when i get into my art and i'm really focused time melts away yeah and i am just doing something and i am in that alpha brain state and it's it's beautiful because it's that self-transcendent escape from your too big brain overthinking everything and worrying about everything but the other side of that coin is that you can escape and make time stop by negative things, negative uh, inputs like like blackout drinking. Time literally stops. Like right. you, you cease to exist, even though you still exist. And I'm curious how you know you you came from you came out of Dartmouth, and like me, you got connected with great jobs and had great opportunities. You took you went to Twitter and took it through an IPO, and you know very successful and really impressive. Um, but I'm curious how you were able to sort of step back and maybe realize that that path was just laid out in front of you despite you really desiring it maybe. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's, that's what is I'm coming to realize more and more. And so it's interesting because yeah, in a lot of ways, yeah, I came out, uh, you know, into California and and found my way and was at Twitter when it was super exciting and new and really, uh, kind of sexy to, to work at, at that company at that time. Um, and so externally everything was going quite well Mm -hmm. in my life. Internally, it was a different story. And I was, I was, I was a real mess and actually living a a pretty heavy double life where um, I had my my tech job and my my nine to five and even my friendships, but then um, you know the dark corners of the night and um, the other times where I could, I was getting away and really had had a, a, a really strong relationship with sub, with negative substances. Yeah, and that's you know I talked to a therapist one time and I was like, yeah, like you know. I drink too much sometimes and it feels a little compulsive, but like it doesn't get in the way of my, you know, my responsibilities. And she's like, that's the scariest kind of drinker because you're so high functioning that like you're able yeah. to, to toe that line so delicately where, you know, you know, if I, if I overstep it in this direction, um, I'm going to start failing in my, my day life. Right. Um, and then if I, if I ease back and go in the other direction, I'm not going to fulfill my, my nightly bloodlust for <laughs> escape. And I'm curious when you sort of, um, when it, when it, you hit that road, the, the path in the road where it split yeah. and it became unsustainable Yeah. because that's a hard decision to make. And it's one of those things that no one can tell you. No one can say like, Alex, you need to get your shit together. You have to, it has to arise from within you. Right. So where did that come from? 
Well, it it took me quite a long time to get there. Sure. And and I think that um, you know many times along my journey with with addiction, I kind of woke up and was like, how did I get here? Like this is not me. And mm-hmm. how did I find myself in this situation? And uh, I think you know I, I had tried many times to to get clean, like doing outpatient programs on the side in secret, right? I really, I had a ton of fear. Well, in secret is another way, you know, it's like you tell yourself, well, I'm not going to drink this week, but if you don't tell anyone else and you fail, who knows? Like there's no, there's no recourse. There's no, except for your own guilt and shame about it. Like that's the sort of like hack to the system. It's like, well, I'm going to try this outpatient program, but I'm not going to tell anyone about it. So if I don't make it, like it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that, that's, that's a, re- a really good point. Yeah, exactly. And it was, it wasn't just that I didn't want to have that accountability. It was just, that I was absolutely terrified of what people might think and how they might right. judge me for the moral failing of being, you know, an addict and in that situation. Yeah. And also someone who apparently had their quote unquote shit together. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, eventually, um, you know, I was brought to a point where, um, you know, I had I had my bottom, where I had gone through. Um, I got married young, and I was uh, my relationship was very much on the rocks, and um, I was my health was deteriorating. I was malnourished. Everything was, you know, about kind of what you'd expect to be yeah. in, at at the bottom. Of Just the, holding on. Yeah, holding on by a thread, and yep. you know, it's it, this was at the point too where you know for a while I had a lot of fun, and it was. The, as quote unquote, the drugs were working and they had just stopped working at this point. And, um, I reached, you know, kind of a, a spiritual reckoning where I was literally brought to my le- knees where at one point my, uh, my ex had, you know, had walked out and I had just been laid off from a job. And I was at that point like, okay, you know what? I'm on my knees and I, I'll do anything. Right. You know? The, the shell, the, the perception of, and like the image of having your shit together had, cracked yes and you your your core was exposed which was not pretty and without that protective shell or that force field of like well no i look like i have my shit together i'm making good money i have a wife you know you can just kind of fake it and maintain but until you you see through those cracks and the light starts or the darkness starts to show through you're faced with it yes yeah yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, I've, I've come to also understand that my my path and what the pain that was underneath my addiction, and really that's just the most important thing I think to get at, was like, okay, mm-hmm. well, why the pain? Not why the addiction. Why were you in pain? And it all relates to what the fear of what other people think of me. Sure. And the fear of being judged, the fear of being rejected for, for who I am. And so um, even even once I had re- known that, okay, what this life that I'm living is absolutely not working, I still had uh, this massive internal battle where, as you know, you know, we, I, 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 I DJed, I partied, I was a, a party guy, DJ yeah. Olo, and I had this yeah. a persona in any, in any person I think who lives in that you know, way, like we associate with being the life of the party and being mm-hmm. vibrant and being someone who you know, once you remove those things, yeah, who, what are who, you? who are you? Yeah. Right. And so, um, it was a tremendously powerful kind of realization and it was like getting my skin peeled off. It wasn't, you know, fun. It wasn't easy. Yeah. Um, and so, but in that point is really though, when my, my journey into personal development work, spiritual work, recovery programs, yeah. meditation, yoga, really 
it, that's that was the and, and I think that those bottoms that at those rock bottoms that you know addicts and alcoholics can have are really really special sacred times because mm-hmm. it's one of the first times in my life where I could actually say I could be honest yeah I could say you know this th- I have no idea what I'm doing right yeah you know this what I'm doing is not working like this and um, it's in in that sense it's it's really precious because we start asking for help and like mm-hmm. for someone who quote unquote, had everything together, I was actually like, okay, uh, this is the ultimate humbling. I don't know what to do. And I will try, I will try different things yeah. to figure out. To and there, there's out. a beautiful freedom in that. I remember, you know, in college, I was known as a party monster like you. And I leaned into that identity because I thought it gave me at least some identity, some sort of like cachet or prestige amongst my peers that, you know, I couldn't gain otherwise. And there's this like German quote, a German saying that's like, once your reputation is destroyed, you're free to live exactly how you want. And I remember after I got suspended from school and, you know, I was like, everyone knows that I got suspended. Everyone knows I'm a fuck up. Everyone knows that I like, you know, did this, you know, just didn't learn my lessons and didn't grow up when I needed to. And I was like, Oh, like I should probably stop majoring in English when I'm getting shitty grades and planning on going to a shitty law school. And I should probably switch to a fine art major, which is what I've always wanted to do. And it gave me that freedom to just be like, well, if people think I'm a fuck up, like I'm just going to do what I want because who cares what they think anyways, they already think I'm this, that, and the other. And you can extrapolate that same feeling into, you know, what you went through when you were really humbled, your entire, you know, world had broken down your job and your relationship and then you were free to explore like, okay, so like, what do I really want? Like, what do I want Besides, in the vacuum of social pressure and social perception? What speaks to me? And I think it's so beautiful that you transitioned into self-improvement and optimization. And that's why I wanted to have you on the podcast because like, you're going down a path that is um, so inspiring. And I, I just am curious about the steps you took and you know how it evolved yeah. and where you're headed. Yeah. Um, well, first I'm just, I'm also so glad that you did pivot to creative uh, art and because yeah. your, your art's amazing. Yeah, and thank then, you. Um, I studied English at well at, as well at Dartmouth and it was, uh, it was actually nice because that's what I really wanted to study at mm-hmm. the time. And um, yeah, so what really would happen, um, what happened for me was um, once I started you know, I, I basically once I admitted that I finally was ready to get help and to seek treatment, um, I dove headfirst into AA. Into AA led me to um, different group settings in the recovery space. That led me to Against the Stream, which is a Buddhist-based recovery group. Okay. And I was I've always been a meditator and a yogi, and so you know it's funny that you say like you never struck me as a spiritual person because I I mean I guess I really wasn't, but I've always I've always had this draw sure. towards something, and like I started practicing yoga in college even, and um, basically from 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 the initial like deep kind of psychological work which I was doing in AA in uh, this Buddhist recovery program. I was also doing like extensive therapy uh, multiple times a week, group mm-hmm. therapy. And to get to the root of it, that pain, that, to, to get that to young the Alex pain. Yeah, yeah. And so I was, you know, they say that an addict needs to cling to their rec- recovery program like a drowning person clings to a, rif- a life raft. And yeah. that's that's really what I did. I dove head first, became my kind of obsession. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then, you know, I think there was... The, the spiritual path kept just 
unfolding and blossoming the more work, the more uh, introspection I did. Um, and then it ultimately led me to, you know, the jungles of the, the Amazon rainforest. Yeah, definitely to, want to talk about that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you are a sober guy. You are, um, you don't drink, you don't do drugs, but you do allow yourself to dabble in a healthy, spiritually centered way with psychedelics. And I, from what I can tell, those have been hugely beneficial for you in terms of you're not doing it to get fucked up. You're doing it to grow and to learn and to, to battle those demons that you may have that are in your subconscious or your lizard brain and emerge on the other side stronger. So I've never done ayahuasca. I'm definitely curious about it, but what's that experience like? I mean, after you've, you know, gone through recovery and stabilized and then realized like, okay, I want to push further in terms of, um, self-development. How, what's that, what's that like? What's that process like? Yeah. If so for me, one thing that I did, which I'm super glad it things flowed this way. I mean, I wasn't ready, but, uh, until I was ready, I guess, but, um, I did not first drink ayahuasca until I was a year entirely sober after right. doing a lot, a lot of deep work. And so I had already come to a place where, um, I had looked at myself quite a bit and through many different programs and, um, the first time I, I drank. And so, and yeah, it is an interesting thing too, because, you know, if there's, you know, I had friends in the recovery community who, you know, say, well, you're going to do what? Right. You're going to relapse. Are you, are you out of your mind? Yeah. And so it's a, it's a, it, you know, this was a few years back where, I mean, it's, it's becoming way more in vogue now than it, than it even was then. Um, but the first time I, I did that in a ceremonial setting, um, it just absolutely kind of blew the lid off my, my consciousness. And I would say that, um, it's, it's, it's impossible to, to articulate, but it was so magnetic, uh, volcanic you know just absolutely explosive yeah. um it confirmed many things about um i think reality consciousness and and i want to say spirit mm -hmm. that i had always suspected um and then it also exposed some serious inner wounds some that work to do some some work that um yeah some work that i don't think i would have ever found yeah and i think that's important because you know, a lot of people get sober and they become dry drunks. Yeah. They just redirect their abuse from self-abuse with drinking and drugging to maybe abuse towards a spouse, maybe abuse towards their children, you know, abuse yeah. that's just outward or they abuse themselves in other ways. They eat too much. They, there's a million ways to, to redirect that, that need for it's, it, it all comes back to escapism. It's, it's getting out of, your head. So you have to find a way to be comfortable with your head. Mm -hmm. And I think it sounds like ayahuasca, um, exposes some of the underlying conditions that you may need to work through to continue down that path of not just being sober from alcohol and drugs, but sober from that pain, you yeah. know? And, um, do you think that drinking ayahuasca and the times you've done it has helped you expose some of those things that you can work on then through therapy or through, you know, you don't always have to be drinking ayahuasca to improve. You, you, right. you can get, get the ticket and then, you know, take the ride in terms of doing the work 
outside of the ceremony. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's something that I think there's a, a few things that are happening with it. One is that um, we're, we're drinking plants mm-hmm. and indigenous medicine. Mm-hmm. And there is a strong sense that um, what, you know, it's, it's quite amazing what the, the, I mean, one, you know, people can drink the same brew and have just have tremendously different experiences. Yeah. Um, but I've always found that it really points to um, an innate wisdom. Like every time I do it, it's like, oh my God, wow, there's there's this whole knowledge sphere. And like, you know, guys like us, we're, we, we love, you know, the intellect and ideas. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, every time I've had the privilege of drinking that that sacrament, I, I find like, oh wow, there's, there's a whole sphere of um, holistic kind of indigenous ancestral wisdom that yeah. is um, a whole different type of learning that um, I've been exposed to, but it all interestingly points to the wisdom that's within us. And yeah. so, um, yeah, to, to your question, I found it, it is w- w- when you can work with that medicine in a community and integrate the experiences, which is really key where you're not just doing it and then not, you know, that's it. Oh, hey, boys, yeah, I did it. Fun. You, know, you know, it's like, no, working with one of my teacher, my spiritual teachers or my therapist, I'm fortunate to have a, a great mm-hmm. community around me where you can process those experiences. Um, but it, it, it is in a lot of sense, like um, just kind of like, you, you know, um, Stan, Stan Groff, who is one of the pioneers of LSD, calls call, called psychedelics um, a non-specific amplifier of the unconscious. Mm-hmm. So it's non-specific in the sense that like whatever you have in there, yep. it's going to just totally expose and yep. erupt. And yep. so, um, yeah, I've found that, you know, that wounded inner child, like we were getting at earlier, like that, I've encountered that Alex mm-hmm. in ceremonies, which is extremely painful and, you know, at times um, can be brutally embarrassing too. Sure. And, and so there's something powerful about doing doing that in a ceremonial setting and having other people witness you go through that process. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very so vulnerable. Extremely, yeah. And so, yeah, getting back to, you know, my, my journey and my fear of what other people think where, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, I think one thing I, I would want to stress just with doing this this type of medicine work is that it's, you know, it, it's not necessarily easy. Like they call it work for, for a reason. And so, you know, no one wants to have a meltdown in public, right? Yeah, no. You know, and so I've had... I, man, I have been humbled, you know, time and time again. And I've, I've had other nights where I'm blasted off into the ethereal realms. And, you know, mm-hmm. that I've had those experiences too. But the most fruitful experiences have been the one where I've been that seven-year-old Alex you asked me about earlier, where I can't hold still. And I'm kind of just crying, a mess, you know, agitated. And there's something there that is just so potent and that I'm still that I'm still learning about what, yeah. yeah, what's, what actually is that that's about. Well, do you think there's, there's a sense of, um, release because that seven year old crying can't sit still Alex is something you've been repressing and trying to hide. So to let it out and then let it out in a way that's with the observer effect of being seen is sort of just like, ah, oh, like finally, like I can just like be who I am, even if who I am is this broken, injured little child, mm-hmm. it's just, it's okay, it's fine. Yeah. And then you realize that the world doesn't end and no one judges you and no one laughs at you and makes fun of you and calls you names. And then you're like, okay, so what do we do with this new information? How do we push forward? How do we, how do we heal from this experience? 
that that's exactly right yeah you just you just really hit it on the head um and it's so interesting because a lot of the times where i've had that kind of in it feel, and it can feel like insanity when you're entering that child state um but i actually hadn't realized it until after where you know some of my teachers and facilitators will be like you know it seemed like you were kind of out of your body and like a little little boy alex and yeah. then it's just like whoa fireworks like oh my god that's what was happening wow. and so it's it just it's ex- extremely blessed to have the support of very wise elders and teachers yeah. um, on this path um, but yeah and and i think that you know for me to to your point too like as just as men right like we have such words we dwell so much in the heady realm of the intellect and have such a hard time tapping into that mm-hmm. that um you know, you would talk about Grace, who's, you know, doing her psych program, my, my lady, and she'll always ask me, like, how I'm feeling, and I'll say something, she'll be like, that's not a feeling, dude. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I'm hungry. <laughs> yeah, or just, like, I'll be, you know, I'll be like, well, like, I'm a little upset about, like, how the politics are going. She's like, that's yeah. not a feeling. Yeah, like, you yeah, know? yeah. You know, and so we have a hard time dropping down into that Yeah, space. getting into that emotional space and yeah. really feeling our feelings and not just deflecting them, being like, I'm fine. Yeah. White-knuckling yeah. it, as, you know, so many generations did, they you know, whatever, you know, they came back from the war and they had shell shock, which was, we now know as PTSD. And what they do, they just drank and didn't talk. Yeah. And that was, right. that was how they dealt with it. But now I think it's becoming more acceptable for men to embrace that emotional side and heal those, you know, maybe early traumas or later traumas that involve real emotional vulnerability and deep work. And so obviously you're not just drinking ayahuasca all the time and like, having insights and then thinking about them. What sort of communities, you mentioned community, have you built as a support network to really take those insights that you've gotten from your ceremonies or from you know whatever deep work you're doing and um, progress? Yeah, so I'm extremely fortunate to be plugged into a couple different communities. The one primary one that's, um, it's just, you know, I, I have people who I meet with regularly, teacher teachers of mine who, um, I process this stuff and who, you know, I wouldn't say are just, it's not, it, you know, um, some of the most dynamic, brilliant people I've ever, I've ever met. And so, um, yeah, I've, I think it's, it's true, true. It's been really amazing because it truly is like a community. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I think about too, how, when I was in early recovery where you, at first, you know, and I think when I was in spending a lot of time in AA and you see a lot of guys who you're like, oh that's amazing. He, he's living a life that's sober and clean. And I, he has something I want. They talk Mm -hmm. about that in recovery where it's like, you have to have examples of people who have something that you want and that you strive for that. Yeah. And then I found when I started meeting the meditators and the yogis, Mm -hmm. and then I meet the medicine, you know, let's call them medicine men where they're, you know, yogis, meditators, and you know, they've got their maybe life on the side where they're doctors or whatnot, but then you see they're also dancing in the ceremonial space and you're just like, Oh wow, this is a different type of presence. Mm -hmm. And that's actually that type of full, fully integrated human experience. And so uh, eventually that kind of became the thing that I looked to as, okay, these guys, they, they've got a twinkle in their eye and they know something about the way this universe works that I don't know exactly, but I, I, I want some of that. Yeah. So, and that's, it's such a good, um, goal to have, you know, I think back to our college days and 
I would look at the upperclassmen in my fraternity who were the social chairs or they were involved with pledge term or they, you know, they had these roles in the fraternity. I was like, I want that. Yeah. Uh, I want that status. And I would do whatever it took to work towards it. And for better or worse, I gained all the things I was working towards. Right. Um, but now, you know, trying to refocus your role models into more enlightened, more um, positive, more grounded um, sort of centers of being is it's sort of the next evolution. Yeah. And it's it's really cool that you have targeted these people who you can you can say, I like what he's got. I want to emulate it. And what are the steps I can take to work towards that? Yes. Because success is once you know how to be successful and know how to gain something you're working towards, you can apply it to any other facets of your life. Right. You know, if you want to be the best drinker, you can work towards that. If you want to be the best yogi or you want to be, you know, the most meditative, Zen, present, beautiful person, you can work towards that. So I'm glad that you're working towards, you know, what you're working towards now. And it seems like this community you've found is super beneficial for that. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say that I'm, I feel, I feel extremely fortunate and blessed to have found the community. Um, and yeah, what you say there, it makes me think of just, and I'm sure you can relate to this where, you know, right out of college and in college, you know, we're looking up for, we want to get the money. We Mm want to get the the job and the, you know, the big things and even being in a product of many ways of Silicon Valley where, you know, insane wealth and, you know, people who, who really make, make in just absurd amounts of money. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, I think for a lot of people becomes the draw productivity, you know, let's optimize ourselves so we can be, you know, the best, uh, investor worker. Sure. And I think that now kind of where I'm at is ha- having met people, um, you know, some of these teachers and others who, you know, they don't have to even say anything mm-hmm. and they can kind of heal you just, or, and you just, it's just being in their presence. Yeah. Like I think it really comes down to presence. And so, yeah, for me now it's less about the material things, but more about like, how can I cultivate, uh, an embodied presence? Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's sort of a, a cliche about like the Silicon Valley CEO who gets really into meditating and like goes on silent retreats and does all these things, all these things. But I think it's because they, they won the financial world. They won the status world, the access world. And they realize that it doesn't, they're like, okay, but there's still something missing. Uh, Jim Carrey has a great quote. That's like, I wish everyone could be rich and famous so they could realize it's not the answer. Yeah. And Jim Carrey is a super heady dude. Now he's, you know, he does a lot of work, uh, spiritually and inwardly and not everyone has the luxury of not having to struggle financially, but I think you can still fulfill that spiritual hole without having to go through you know, the financial success first, you can work on them simultaneously. You can have a nine to five job, minimum wage and know that, yes, you're working towards being, you know, a stable adult who can support their family, but you can also work on the side towards this other goal, which is uh, a sort sense of self-fulfillment and self-confidence and comfort with yourself that comes not from anything external. It's all internal. Mm-hmm. Um, so what sort of advice or what have you learned from your support groups that helps helps you move towards that goal 
separate from all the external goals that people may be distracted by? Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And I think first I would, would also just want to comment on something that you said, which is, you know, in Silicon Valley, you know, med- like to your point, meditating, even drinking ayahuasca now mm-hmm. as a CEO and investor, like it's become almost a trope in itself yeah. where, you know, I think it's being parodied and, you know. Like, yeah, they all go to Burning Man on Billionaire's Row. Ex- and- yeah, I mean, this is not necessarily like new stuff. I mean, for me, as someone, I can also say that this is my, my own thing, but like I also take like offense to that because like being so committed and so steeped in this stuff. Um, you but, question but the also, but also, yeah. but also the exact same thing that I feel resentment towards, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, because I think that w- what that I think you're right that a lot of these there are many good examples of these CEOs who achieve massive wealth and then you know want to cultivate kind of a, that that presence and awareness. But then I think that you know all these things are also these kind of spiritual activities are being commoditized like meditation and, you know, people meditating to really just optimize their output and to improve their productivity. And so I think that what I am in to, to get to your, your question, like what I've kind of come to learn is that it's, it's really all about just being, being, being present with the body and Mm -hmm. being, um, I, yeah, First, showing up for yourself in your in your garden and the world around you, and then tending tending to that garden in yeah. a way that, um, in a way where there's alignment. And so, I think, for me, what I what I've learned most is that, um, you know, meditating, yogi, yoga, right? Like even Burning Man, like these experiences aren't aren't to you know optimize your output. Yeah. They're to embrace the fullness of, of life. Right. Yeah. And I think without that intention, you know, you can go to Burning Man and just do drugs. You can do ayahuasca and think it's just like a cool experience, like a notch on your belt to have, but without the intention of really growing and finding that presence and that, that ability to show up for yourself, you're going to miss the point a little bit. Yeah. And I, I could see why that makes you a little edgy. When yeah. you hear about, you know, oh, Jeff Bezos went on an ayahuasca retreat. And it's like, why did he go on the ayahuasca retreat? Yeah, 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 yeah. You know? But maybe he is doing the deep work. So you, you have to give people the benefit of the doubt, at least, or hope that they're going to get there by accident, maybe. Right. Um, but I don't think, I think it's a very intentional act, wouldn't you say? I, I totally agree. And, and that's what I'm saying. Like, I think it's, it's all good, right? It's all like good thing. Like people, more people go to Burning Man, good. The more people who meditate, and, and drink, drink, have the opportunity to drink medicine. Like that's, that's a great thing. And, and it really is changing. Like there's, there's even, even in the recovery world and the addiction mm-hmm. and recovery landscape, it's becoming, there's just, you know, whether it's the um, Johns Hopkins studies with MDMA right. and psilocybin. Um, but you know, these are being fast tracked right now to phase three, right? So it's there, there is this meta awareness that this stuff is good and real. And we need to rethink about re reapproach how our relationship with some of these things um, and that's not, that's not anything new. I mean, AA was started by Dr. Bob and then actually a guy from Dartmouth who I can't remember his name. Dr. Bob was from Dartmouth and Dr. Bill Bob Wilson. Dar- okay. Bill, yeah. Bill Wilson. Yep. Yeah. He, yeah. And one of them, I'm, I'm going to get it wrong, but one of them actually advocated the use of LSD in recovery. And the other one said, that's breaking sobriety. Get the fuck out of here. But it's, you know, that was back in the fifties or sixties. So there was an inclination towards the ability of psychedelics to not be a, a party drug and yeah. to be a aid to recovery and growth. Yeah. So, and now it's kind of, it's becoming a clinical realization right. as we deal with PTSD through MDMA and, 
you know, there's ketamine therapies being done for depression. Um, so it's, it's, it's clear that there's something to it. You know, it's, there's definitely a there there. Um, and that's beautiful because I don't know, I ate mushrooms as a teenager and a college kid and it was just fun. But now talking to you about microdosing and, you know, being more intentional about it and learning from it is something that I'm really excited to explore. So I'm glad that we're having this conversation. Yeah, yeah, and it's funny that you mentioned the the Bill Wilson and AA thing because I I know a lot of guys who really hate and it's very triggering to hear. But you know, he had um, his spiritual awakening, which is the one of the core tenants of the AA program. And it is a deeply spiritual program where um, you know they essentially you have a spiritual awakening and that spiritual awakening allows you to never pick up a drink again. Um, and that was aided, um, Bill Wilson by, um, an LSD, um, experience. And then he pre- proceeded to be in many studies where he was working with it. And he actually mm-hmm. wanted to be part of the steps, but to your point, that's when, um, it, the, the organization got control of, I, I'm blanking on the name, but it was rooted a little bit more in Christian, a Christian organization yeah. at that point that or their roots and so uh yeah that was not kosher at the time right um and so yeah it's all it's all kind of happening to to your point and there is a there there. happening and um i'm super excited about just i think everything that you know we're seeing i mean i think it's the i guess you could say the um spiritual materialism or the commodification of spirituality and meditation you know these are you know, like in Gwyneth Paltrow and Goop and Goop, that yeah. having a, you know, Netflix series. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, it's still awesome. Like, like let's show people yeah. about well, that awareness stuff. awareness is great. Yeah, rather than, I don't know, whatever it is, just, you know, drinking alcohol or, uh, you know, so many other things that yeah. we can be doing um, with our precious consciousness. Yeah, I mean, and there is so much more we can be doing. And, it, you know, your intention has to be in the right place, but hopefully you get there. Um, and I, am equally inspired by your path as I am with where you're headed. You, you know, you have a newsletter every Friday, Fridays on the OLO, because it seems like you're sort of bursting with not only the benefits you've reaped in your own transformation, but how you can then radiate them out into the world. And so, you know, the hurt people, hurt people, heal people, heal people. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like you've done a lot of healing and you want to share. You're saying, come along with me. Like, this is great. Come down this path with me. And your writing is, you know, beautiful and academic, but accessible. And um, what what's your goal with that? What's your, what's your, um, where is it headed? That's a good question. Um, when I started the newsletter two years ago, and I mean, I, I, I've always been a writer in my mind, but I was never actually yeah. sharing it. And I think that just we have such ability and access like you. I mean, you got this amazing podcast. Like we, we so many op- opportunities for us to get to get our you know ideas out there. And mm-hmm. so um, it was kind of at the time where I was like, okay, I know I think I have something to say. I don't know where this might go, but you know, it started just sending to a couple friends and family, and then mm-hmm. from there really started to grow um, organically. And so um, I'm trying to sh- share the things that I've learned on my past, which is you know, a lot of ancient wisdom for, for the modern world, um, a lot of um, philosophy, a lot of um, spirituality. Um, and I think that I ultimately, um, I want to help others 
by way of helping myself. Yeah. I was about to say, I mean, (laughs) writing is always a very self-reflexive process. And whether you're writing for an audience or not, you're generally writing for yourself as well. Right. So you're probably getting the most out of your newsletter, even though you're writing down things that you ostensibly have already learned or already know, it's reinforcing those, those, those uh, ideas in your own brain. And, you know, they say the best way to learn something is to teach it. So you are learning to the nth degree by then sharing and teaching what you've learned. Yeah. Because you're never going to stop learning and you're, you may think you have the ultimate grasp on these different concepts, but you can always push it a little further. And I think sharing it is the best way to do that. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's cool to see that you're putting yourself out there, that vulnerability, um, because it goes back to your, your younger days being insecure and scared of what people might think about you and scared of showing your true self. And now you've identified your true self. You've, you've really soberly focused in on who and what you want out of who you are and what you want out of life. And now you're putting it out there and saying like, this is my trippy shit. Like read it. You know, this is my heady <laughs> metaphysics thoughts about the, the universal consciousness. And it's, you're doing it in such a honest and, um, real unapologetic way I mean, that must feel good for you. Um, well, first, thank thank you, man. I really appreciate that. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, writing is is totally the process um, where you I you know you realize that okay, I think I know something about this this one idea. Like mm-hmm. maybe it's metamodernism or whatever it might be. And um, then you you write about it. You realize you have no idea. Yep. But then through that process, you 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 get a little bit closer towards your your understanding and so it it is definitely a a healing process for myself to put this out there i mean there's this archetype of the wounded healer yeah right where um you're you know someone who's who's gone through very traumatic experiences then need you know i I need to try to help others as a way to help myself it's you know it's that's also one of the major tenets of a successful recovery well it's it's the hero's journey you go out into you fight the good fight you go through all these trials and then you return with the elixir. And yeah. the elixir is not just for you. It's to share with your community. So you're you're doing that. You're sharing the elixir that you found through your own trials and tribulations with the community you've built, of friends and family. And then, you know, your newsletter has a part of it that's also a, a Wednesday community group, right? Yeah. And we've got a real community forming, which was which is awesome. And it was it was born at the start of uh, coronavirus where um, I I just had a spidey sense that Okay, we're we're facing existential. I mean, we've we've always faced existential threats, right? Sure. But now with coronavirus, and then really, um, well, first it was like, okay, we, we need a place to process just what's happening in the world, and so um, started doing it, and I was really shocked by how many people showed up, and then how many people kept showing up, and inviting yeah. friends, and getting these diverse conversations happening, and uh, then you know, following in the wake of George Floyd's death and really the revolution around racism that just exposed so many of our systemic um, faults, right? Yeah. Where, um, you know, just uh, this is an aside, but talk about coronavirus is also that like nonspecific amplifier. I've written about this where it's like a psychedelic where it's just kindling, mm-hmm. erupting all of these things, repressed trauma in the American culture and psyche. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of things are, are being exposed. And so there's a lot that, you know, we got to kind of process and talk about. And so and it's hard to do it alone. It's, it's extremely hard to do it alone. And people, I think what, what, what I hear from other people, and I can say this for myself, especially is like, okay, we're going to crowdsource our topics for what we're going to, what we want to discuss, you know, but we're going to talk this week about, um, you know, maybe it's like, 
um, how, how do you how do you talk to you know a bigot about racism or something along that along those lines where mm-hmm. um, or we had on one week where um, you know what uh, we talked about anti-semitism in the black community and we're there's Jews in this group there's African Americans there's you know Latinos it's a pretty diverse group yeah. and um, you know you would think going into a conversation like that that it's like oh man that's like heavy and I don't know right but then you know afterwards it's like oh wow like we people like genuinely want to talk about this stuff and you I just leave the conversations inspired and learning and um, so it's really that's been one of one of the the big bright spots and I'm excited to see where that might grow from here I mean it's it's beautiful it's it's cool because you know even a decade ago people been like men's like community group like fuck that lame you know they would have said all these things that would have been out of their own insecurity about their masculinity or their uh inability to share their emotions and when you lean into it and just accept that it's it's okay and it's actually really great and it's refreshing and and it's progressive it's um it's cool that you're doing that because I wouldn't have expected it from you, 21-year-old Alex Lachowski. <laughs> um, but here we are, and we're talking about these things, and you and I are, have very similar paths. And I'm curious what advice you'd have for me as someone who, and this is this is the first time this will be revealed, but I've you know talked to you and Tim about it, but I'm retiring from alcohol. Yeah, I've had my fun. I need to let other people have a chance to set some records. But it's just been in the way and I'm kind of over it and uh, I'm moving on from that. So what sort of advice would you give me in terms of moving forward and refocusing and letting go of that crutch, that social crutch, that identity crutch? Yeah. Yeah. Well, first, um, two things. One is that I would love to have your voice at some. You got to come to some of these discussions at some point. Oh, I'll you'd, join. Yeah. yeah. It'd be great to have you there. Um, you'd have a lot to add. Um but two, I, yeah, it's awesome that you're doing that. And I think that it's really special when, you know, you can, when people can do that, like you, you're, you're clear eyed, you're, you're in the seat of your power, right? Mm-hmm. Like in the sense that, um, you're, you're in control and you're not forced, you're, someone's not forcing your hand. And so that's a no. super special place to be. And so my advice is cliche but it's true in the sense that you have to take it one day at a time where you know i think in earlier recovery when you remove alcohol um and you're you know this for you it's more of a conscious choice um you know it's very easy to say okay well wait well well, hold the phone am i never going to drink again right when i'm 60 am i not going to have a glass of wedding with a steak yeah yeah you know all these things and the thing is is that that is the mind virus of addiction and we Mm -hmm. all have this mind virus in a small way and so I think the thing to do is to really, to just, to, well, okay, 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 thanks, uh, Mind Radio Gable, uh, you know, thanks for sharing. Yeah. Today, I've decided that I'm not going to drink. Yeah. Let's table this conversation for now, and we can, we can check in on this tomorrow. Yeah. I'm sure you'll be, you know, running off, you're, you're blasting your radio station. And so I think that what, what I found was, because especially when I was like, wait, is this for life for me? Like, I'm never going to, yeah, at my, you know, uh, uh, when, you know, I have a kid and I want to celebrate with champagne, I'm, that's yeah. never going to be something I When I go back to Dartmouth and I want to play a game of Pong, I play with water. Totally. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, all these, I've had all these thoughts, yeah. believe me. And so you just, you keep tabling and yeah. you keep tabling that conversation. And then what happened for me was just like, oh, wow. Like, I really, I, 
I love how I am. I love my clarity. Yeah. I love myself, you know, more so. I love myself so much that I don't need to 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 hold a drink in a social environment mm-hmm. to feel secure. Yeah. And it's actually incredibly liberating to be in that space, to be in a social environment where, you know, it's kind of like unplugging from the matrix to mm-hmm. to be in a at, at a party, to be at Dartmouth, to play pong with water. Yeah. You know, and um it's extremely liberating. Um, so yeah, I think it's awesome. That that's awesome. I mean, that's, that's what I wanted to hear. That's inspiring for me. Um, you're just a little ways farther down that path and you're someone I can look up to in that regard. And I really appreciate the frank conversation. Um, before we leave, just, I want you to plug all your, you know, your newsletter and plug, you know, how you want people to get a hold of you, because I'm sure you're going to have some people knocking down your door and wanting to, you know, join your men's group and, uh, just follow what you're putting out there because it's, it's, uh, it's very refreshing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's actually at the moment, our community dialogues are co-ed. And so it's a okay. real diverse group. We are working on doing a, a men's group and then also a couple the Corona couples group. So we're planning on growing the community discussions, but yeah, it's really welcome to, to anyone to attend that. Um, I, my newsletter is, um, on the Olo.com. Uh, it's Fridays on the Olo. So it comes out every Friday. Um, we've got, uh, a growing, growing community there, which I'm super excited about. Um, and on social media, um, Twitter is my main thing. You know, I used to work there. Yeah, yeah. So Twitter, you know, I get Twitter. I've got a little bit of a following there. And, you know, I it's an idea space. And so I'm Oloal, uh, O-L-O-A-L. I'm also Oloal on Instagram. I'm trying to figure Instagram out. You'll, I'll help you a little yeah, bit. I yeah, I think I need your help, yeah. too. And, uh, yeah, I could draft off your, your looks, maybe. We should do a, a picture where... <laughs> yeah, I, we'll get a fix, picture. Yeah, for yeah. Sure. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, thank yeah, thank you, man, so much. And you know, I think I would really want to flip the uh, the interviewee interviewer, and because you've had such a similar transform transformative path, where yeah, um, yeah we are similar. Where we, we were talking about this earlier this weekend, where you know, late bloomers, yeah, and it's like cheers to that, right? Because. Yep. You know, late who, than never. <laughs> yeah, who wants to be? You know, who wants to bloom in in high school, right? You know, it's be, it's yeah, better late than never. And um, yeah, and there's just uh, you know, I mean, you we've talked about this before, where you've inspired me with the podcast. I'm now getting the wheels spinning about trying to do that. Yep. So yeah, thank you, man. Well, thank you for sitting down. This has been a great conversation. I'm sure we could talk for many more hours, and we'll do it off mic. So sorry, guys, you don't get to listen, but thanks again, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, brother. All right. Bye, kids. Thank you.